Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to this Reuters Institute event here at Google. Uh, I'm David Levy. I'm the director of the Reuters Institute, so it's really good to see you all here. Uh, let me start with some thanks. First, thanks to colleagues here at Google for kindly hosting us uh, tonight in this rather impressive venue and uh, for the refreshments that they've provided to help the discussion flow uh, well through the evening before and after uh, the discussion we've got. Uh, secondly, to, I want to thank uh, our core sponsor of the Reuters Institute, the Thomson Reuters Foundation, without whom the Institute and our successful journalism fellowship program, our research activity, and multiple events and publications like this tonight simply wouldn't exist. Um, and then thanks to our three panelists uh, here for agreeing to offer their first-hand industry perspectives and kick off what I'm sure will be a fascinating discussion, discussion of Lucy's findings. So we're really lucky to have James Lamont, who's managing editor of the FT, who's living and breathing the challenge of leading the digital transition of the FT at the same time as managing the finances and staffing across the global editorial operations. Aaron Pellhofer is ed executive editor of Digital at The Guardian, having previously worked on digital strategy and led the interactive news team at the New York Times. And Kevin Sutcliffe is head of news programming for the EU from Vice News, but used to work at Channel 4 as editor of the Dispatches series. But finally, and perhaps above all, my thanks go to Lucy Kung, our author over here, uh, who's worked really hard to produce what I think is a, is a great book on an important subject. Um, when Lucy first approached me a while ago about doing this, this book um, in our Reuters Institute Challenges series, I was really excited about it because I thought that while many news organizations claim to have moved to digital, to digital first, amidst the hype and the self-promotion that many of them put out, there was a real lack of hard evidence and data about who was really succeeding and what it was they were doing. So I was confident that if there were anybody that could dig behind the hype and behind the public face to offer some kind of real insight, Lucy was the person to do it. She's got a track record of examining media organizations close up and media leadership and strategy and getting under the skin of media organizations. Um, she did it some years ago for a study she did on the BBC and CNN. Um, and I thought this made her perfectly well suited for the task. But the project had one dimension which I hadn't anticipated. Um, lots of industry leaders were really, really keen to find out what we discovered or what Lucy discovered about their competitors. Um, but uh, they were a little less keen to open up their inner workings to the kind of scrutiny she had in mind. Now, to be fair, sometimes that was not just caution, but the fact that all the people working in this field are really, really busy. But sometimes I think there was a degree of caution as well. So my final set of thanks really go to those organizations who made this book possible, who opened up and let Lucy spend time with them and talk to really busy people trying to innovate, make transitions in often difficult circumstances. And they are the people who helped inform the book that Lucy's produced, which is full of fascinating case studies, interviews, insights, and analysis. Um, that's enough from me. Uh, what's going to happen this evening is Lucy's going to introduce her findings for about 10 minutes. Uh, and then we invite each of the panelists to come up here and offer their brief reactions. And then we move on to discussion. We'll finish the discussion about 7.30, and then we've got about 30 minutes for drinks. Um, before I hand over to Lucy, I will just note there are copies of the book outside, so I'm sure after you've heard this, after this evening's discussion, you'll want to rush out and buy a copy. Don't worry, there's still be, will be a few left by the time you get out the door. So, Lucy, thank you. Over to you.
Okay, it's nice to be here. Thanks to all of you for coming, and again, thanks to the panelists for giving up their time. And two of them were intervie interviewees for the book, so double thanks to them. Um, David's asked me to give a really quick summary, overview, taster of the book, so I'm going to try and do that quickly. Clearly, there were some underlying research questions behind the whole project. And the first research project, the first, I mean, the stimulus really was two decades into the internet, it seemed like there were a group of legacy organizations that were being more successful than others in terms of digital news. And I really wanted to kind of look at those, look at how they were innovating, see if there, it would be possible to kind of filter out of that a kind of best practice that may perhaps be helpful to those a little bit further on the, along the curve. And really early on, I had some very interesting feedback from a very influential one of my key interviewees who said, I think you're probably researching the wrong thing. Um, and his point was that I'm really not very interested in what my peers are doing. Uh, what really interests me are how the pure players, how the new competitors, perhaps from outside the industry, how they're being so successful in digital news. So at that point, I kind of reframed the question slightly and opened it out to look at why some digital news organizations are succeeding with digital news. And so I was looking at pure plays, um, clean sheet organizations as well as legacy. And essentially, I was trying to filter out to see if there's common elements in how they organize themselves, how they view news, how they are led, how they strategize, whatever. Are there any common elements in these organizations behind their success? Which organizations did I choose? As David said it was a really complicated process finalizing the case studies. We ended up with five. I must say there's probably another five organizations I would very much like to cover, but these are the ones we cover. They're not the only ones having success in digital news, but they do meet all the criteria we set out, and those, the, the criteria are actually clarified in the book. So we looked at two legacy players, The Guardian and The New York Times, and we looked at three clean sheet, pure plays, Quartz, BuzzFeed, and Vice. Um, now, I don't want to spend too long on this, but that fourth column there, one, there's a couple of important points in that. Firstly, if you look at that, you see that they're all funded in different ways. They've all got different business models. So one of the points there to make is that I'm really not comparing like with like. This is a diverse group of organizations. The second thing that's interesting, I think, in that column is that they've all got ownership structures that give them a degree of protection from market forces, a degree of an ability that's really important, I think, if you need to innovate. You need what Jeff Bezos said he gave the Washington Post, which is runway, time to experiment, try to, try, time to uh, launch new products and see how they work and adapt as necessary. And I think the other point that I found very interesting looking at this, particularly BuzzFeed and Vice, who have very, very substantial, they're privately held and have substantial funding from private investors. Um, Vice, interestingly, has nearly six times the funding of BuzzFeed. We hear a lot about how well, how well funded BuzzFeed is, but actually Vice is really much, much more substantially funded. And interestingly, actually, where their funding comes from. So BuzzFeed is actually funded pri primarily by... by, by um, venture capital tech investors, whereas Vice, interestingly, a lot of the companies investing in Vice are actually legacy companies. So WPP, Martin Sorrell, Hearst, Disney, um, and so on. So those are the companies. In addition, I had a few kind of private questions on the side. I was curious about particularly BuzzFeed and Vice, why they're so highly valued, why they seem to be, by people who know, increasingly included in the news sector and why so many pedigree journalists are joining them. 
Um, and then secondly, I mean, this is really the classic question in any sector that hit by a major technology transition. What are the hurdles that stop leading players before the tech transition? More often than not, they're not, they don't have the same position after. So I was looking also, just for me personally, some insights into what, what are the particular challenges that legacy organizations face. Okay, so the book has six chapters, sorry, seven chapters, five of them are the case studies. And I'm going to give a really superficial taster of just one of the chapters, which is actually BuzzFeed. We don't have anyone here from BuzzFeed tonight, so they're kind of represented in spirit. And this is clearly BuzzFeed. This is one of the individuals responsible for the feline content at BuzzFeed. Um, he does the cat videos. And put onto that, stuck on the, on the top of that picture, is, is one of the many uh, mathematical formulae by which BuzzFeed operates. And I've put that juxtaposition there on purpose to show that BuzzFeed ostensibly is kind of frothy, disposable, uh, content, but underlying that are some really heavy-duty sort of mathematical scientific principles. And in fact, BuzzFeed, um, this is an attempt to try and spin, uh, reduce 10,000 words down to a single sheet, but BuzzFeed is really best understood, I decided, as a tech company with a media layer on top. And essentially, data science, data analysis underlines really everything they're doing. The, all, all of their content, they have Four core areas of content. Um, they're very serious about video, native, they count as an area of content that's native advertising. And then they have editorial. So in editorial, the buzz is that, you know, much maligned listicles, cat videos, quizzes. And news fits into the editorial. That having been said, half of all the journalists working in BuzzFeed are actually working in the news sector. And as we've seen, a lot of they've made a lot of very, very high profile peers from what I've learned the term for it from pedigreed news organizations. Um, all of that content creation is underwritten, is driven. The engine at the heart of BuzzFeed is data science, data analytics. There's a kind of perpetual loop of analysis trying to work out what, what content is working online, um, trying to distill principles out of that, and then experimenting. So essentially, what they're trying to do, and Jonah Peretti, who founded it, is started off as a scientist. They're trying, and he's influenced by really the, the principles of epidemiology. Why do viruses spread? So, essentially, what characteristics in content uh, influence how whether it goes social or not? Trying to maximise them, and then in that way you accelerate the spread rate of your content. Um, as we said, uh, Buzzfeed is a private company. Just like Amazon, like Facebook before its IPO, it has a strategy of growth, not profits, um, and it's a strategy of building for the long term. So it's really to summarize BuzzFeed. I think what BuzzFeed, some of you may know, it started off as a content lab in Chinatown, a, a hobby for Jonah Peretti to his main job. He was one of the founders of Huffington Post. So he was doing it on the side until Huffington Post was sold to AOL, at which point he moved to BuzzFeed as his main job. And it started off as a lab to try and decode why some content goes viral. And essentially, that's more or less what BuzzFeed is still doing. It made two very big pivots in terms of its strategy, heavily into news 2012 and into video 2013. Interesting in terms of uh, Jonah Peretti's strategy for BuzzFeed. He's, he's, he's a quite reflective individual, and he's written extensively on where he sees Buzz, 
BuzzFeed sitting in the sort of his historical development of the news field. And he's actually said he feels BuzzFeed has a role filling the hole left by the decline of newspapers. So it doesn't seem to be a hobby activity. It seems to be a very serious commitment for him. As I said, in terms of they don't look like a typical media organization. Data science is the governing principle by which they're creating their content. And they run their company. They grow their company. They internationalize their company. They finance their company actually like a tech organization. And I think they're a classic disruptor. They started down market with tacky content that people didn't really take seriously, just as CNN did in its time, just as Netflix is, did. And they're progressing resolutely up. So quickly, move, just sort of very quick summary of the kind of conclusions this book came to. Well, I, my stated goal was to try and find, are there common, common elements behind why these organizations are successful? And essentially, I came up with six to seven elements. The dark blue, the three dark blue Reuters blue elements in the middle are actually common to any high-performing organization in any sector, uh, any point in history, in any geographic region. And they're really very much kind of organizational characteristics. Tremendous singularity of purpose. These organizations really have a very clear sense of what they're trying to do in very muddled, very confused, very disrupted markets. And coming out of that, they have a very unequivocal strategy, a very, very clear boiled down strategy. And the benefit of that is that it allows a lot of prioritization. It allows people to focus. People in those organizations that I spoke to knew exactly what they were trying to do and also what they weren't going to be doing. Um, and if you can pull that off, you get a very differentiated market position and a very clear proposition for your audiences and for your advertisers. Um, driving those two elements actually was very smart leadership. And all in this, the organizations I looked at, it was really, I think there was a really unusual caliber of leadership. Very, very different leaders, but all extremely strong leaders. And the two elements, I think, that really mark those leaders out were, firstly, they seem to be very intuitive strategists. I mean, in the current media markets, it's actually terribly hard to develop a strategy. Things are changing so fast. Um, but they, nonetheless, they had ability to kind of distill a strategy out of this. And also, tremendous credibility with their internal culture. So a lot of respect from the people in the organization for the leaders. Um, and journalists are really, really difficult populations to lead, actually. They're smart individuals, they're cynical, they're trained to ask questions, they're allergic to management speak. So they're, uh, they, they, they were very, very heavy duty, very impressive leaders. The two light blue elements are really, I think, specific to the media industry. Um, the first is a pro-digital culture. What really hit me about these organizations, to a lesser extent at the legacy ones that were making the transition, but still to a startling extent in comparison to some of the other organizations I've been in, they really seem to see digital fundamentally as an opportunity, not as a threat. There was a kind of, uh, you know, as some of you may know, if, if environmental things are seen as a threat, people get very rigid in their thinking. So it's really very, very important that people see digital as an opportunity. And these organizations genuinely seemed, seemed to. And they really weren't nostalgic about the past, the pre-internet days. And the other thing that was really important, I think, which is really, I think, the big story is this very, very deep integration of technology into journalistic processes. Um, and this is 
this has many, many dimensions, and it's actually something I'd like to do more work on. But essentially, what it seemed to be is, at one level, at the kind of architecture level, there was a linking of mobile, social, CMS, workflow, and so on. What that allowed, rather than, in terms of the digital content, trying to make pieces that were developed for the non-digital world work in terms of digital content, a much more fluid approach to designing content for digital platforms, um, a sort of open-mindedness, uh, and a, a way of almost transferring the old values of journalism onto the new digital platforms. So essentially, a piece of content can take whatever format is going to work best, and it can be a listicle, it can be an infographic, it can be a chart, it can be a piece of long-form traditional writing, but a sort of open-mindedness, a flexibility about what content looks like, what quality content looks like, and in order to do that, you actually need a different type. I think that's another big point. Um, as someone put it to me, digital editorial thinkers, people who understand the technology and understand, who synthesize journalistic principles, journalistic skills, but also have the kind of digital skills as well. I think the other important thing, just a little one down at the bottom, the early start. You know, some of these organizations, um, Vice actually, New York Times, have been engaging in digital markets for a very, very long time. And that means a lot of learning, a lot of mistakes, getting attuned to the pace of the industry. And I think critically for legacy players, actually also making a lot of investments before the print revenues have really seriously begun to dry up. And then just finally, another point um, that emerged to me right at the end of the analysis. It was really striking how actually these organizations all had very similar strategic goals at the moment, strategic priorities. Um, and I did wonder if maybe this is the beginning of a kind of new business model for digital news that's emerging. So very heavy emphasis on video, growth in the field of video, native advertising as a significant revenue stream, developments in events and membership and conferences. Um, it's not entirely clear what's going on. They all have it as a big priority. I don't know how much revenue that's really generating, but that's, it is a strategic thrust for all of them. Expansion internationally, growth internationally, and picking up on my last point that came up in the analysis of the companies, their prioritization, high investments in integrating technology into editorial processes, data analysis into also informing the, using data to inform the content. So that's it from me. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you. Um, thank you. That's great. So could I ask our panelists to come and sit up on these stools, please? Lucy, uh, do you want to sit on one of these? And um, I wanted to, uh, where's, you got the microphone, yes. I wanted to start with uh, James Lamont. Uh, James, uh, the FT's one of the, is not a case study in this book, so you've read the book, you've seen the book. I just wanted to ask you how much, if any of this, rings true for your experience at the FT, and then just ask you for your observations briefly on what you've heard and what you've read. Well, a lot of Lucy, well, good, good evening, first of all, um, everyone. Um, Lucy's book I enjoyed reading immensely because it speaks very much to what we've been engaged with and our peers in this industry. Uh, for the last 10 years, probably longer now. Um, I love the case studies. Uh, I work for the Financial Times. I think we know the Guardian and the New York Times very well. We watch them very closely. We consider them peers. Uh, we share things like the singularity of purpose 
uh, and we have quite a shared history. I mean, the Financial Times is 127 years old, for instance. Um, I learned new things in the case studies about courts uh, and Vice and BuzzFeed, and I recommend it as a lovely primer to kind of quickly familiarize yourself uh, with um, very distinct media organizations, but as Lucy says, with lots of overlap and increasing overlap. I particularly liked um, her uh, quotes uh, as a journalist because they really entertain me. And if you read nothing else, read some of the quotes because they're quite telling and it tells you something about the personality of people in journalism, um, both contemporary and past, uh, and how frank they are. Um, the conclusions um, that Lucy had up in two slides behind, behind this one um, are a great playbook, actually. If I had to uh, write our summon strategic note, I think there would be elements of all those in that note. And if Lucy wants another job uh, as a copywriter um, for, for media strategy, I'd say that's pretty well front and central in terms of some of the issues that we're um, engaging with. There's only one that I would probably differ with there, and that's early start. And in one of the case studies, she says that someone says to her, well, actually, the early start doesn't matter so much because in five years' time, we'll probably be doing something completely different anyway. Such an accelerated track are we on at the moment that it does feel a bit like that. You're experimenting a lot. You're trying things. You would like them to succeed, but you're okay if they fail because you're looking for something that really works. And I'll give you an example from the FT that, that it's something old, but something that we found to work really well. And it's news by email, which sounds probably probably very old. <laughs> but it's, we have found recently that it's been incredibly effective. We do, I mean, many of our competitors and peers are doing something similar, but we learned, launched something called First FT. We were a bit late to launch, to be honest. Um, and uh, we've had the most remarkable, and it's, it's, we do it for the Asian market, for the US market, and for the European market. And uh, we launched a little under a year ago. It's been amazingly successful um, for us. It's successful because we monitor the opening rates of the emails, and they're very high. They're higher than what you'd say is the industry standard now. And also, they pull people into the site. And for us, the Greek crisis has been a very big story, and we're using data at the moment precisely to look at how the Greek, our Greek coverage has opened up new subscribers. And something like well, the email, but also a very good story, can really turn into very, very high engagement. So I think you don't necessarily need to have had an early start. I think we all feel as if we've had early starts because we've been doing this for about 20 years. But you learn new things all the time. The other thing I'd, I'd say is, you know, for us, what's very important is the business model. And we all have different business models. And something that the FT that has, we've re worked really, really, really hard on and still do is how to make money out of journalism and how to have a sustainable business model when owned by entities that are not owning us for fun. Um, uh, but are owning us because they want to run us as a business. And so we've established that people have to pay for our journalism, and we spend a lot of time working out how much to give free and how much to put
put behind the paywall, how, how to price that, and also how to uh, get more and more subscribers. So in a snapshot, we have 737,000 um, pay what we call paying readers now, and that includes 200,000 print subscribers, so the rest are digital. So we have more digital subscribers, paying subscribers, than we have print. But it's the business model we spend an awful lot of time thinking about, both B2C, B2B. And if there was a sequel to Lucy's book, I would strongly encourage her to look at the business model, because ultimately that will probably determine who's around in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, and who's not. And some of these business models are very difficult to understand. So that's, I think, my five minutes are up. James, thank you. thank you very much. Could you pass the microphone to Aaron, and yeah. Aaron, can you give your perspective since you currently work for one of the case studies in the book and used to work for another one? The so. other one, yeah. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I think that if there were to be a, a, a future edition, uh, a version two of this, it would be really smart to focus on business models because I do think that you're absolutely right. That's a big differentiator between the sort of traditional media and, and sort of the, the pure plays or the the pure digital uh, competition. And and so sitting from, you know, going from one legacy news organization, 161 years old, to one that's almost 200 years old, I'm not working at a startup like the FT, it's 127. <laughs> so I wouldn't know what that's like. But the, the you know, being in, a, in that sort of environment, you know, you're dealing with something that the pure plays are not. Obviously, you're dealing with uh, two platforms, not one. You're dealing with a transition from a legacy platform to a new platform or platforms. You're dealing with a transitioning business model. Things are up in the air constantly. Just when you think you have the desktop figured out, some, somehow now you've got to deal with this, you know, 70% mobile. And just when you think you have that figured out, then suddenly you're dealing with um, Facebook instant articles and everything going off, off your platform and on and on and on. So it's a really challenging time, obviously, for for organizations like like the Guardian, like the New York Times, like the FT. We're all sort of trying trying to figure this out. Um, my personal focus, next to business models, is is process and organization and structure. And a lot of the legacy organizations I've worked for many. Um, um, we are generally structured brilliantly to produce a product, a daily product, which is in most cases, at least in my career, has been a daily newspaper. Um, we're tuned for that. How do you then shift into a world in which you look at, say, an organization you didn't look at, which is, which I think is particularly really interesting, which is Vox. Uh, not Vox.com, but Vox Media, um, where, you know, they have a structure where tech, where every, ver where there's, pure, it's, it's vertical. If you look at the, the sum of what Fox Media produces, you, you could look at this and say, well, that's pretty interesting. That's kind of like a, a, a newsroom. But they've divvied it up into, into verticals, Eater and, and, and Racked and uh, Vox.com uh, Vox and so forth. Every one of those is run jointly by an editorial lead and a product lead. Technology is, is embedded. I mean, it's not a separate thing in a separate building in a separate state in the case of the, New York, of the Washington Post, it used to be in Virginia. Um, these people work together every single day on, on the product and they are developing um, the product together. And that is not what's happening as much as it should in, in, in traditional news organizations. I think if you were to do this again in 
five years looking at the business models, I think you would look at the ones, the organizations that are successful in making that transition, I think are the ones that understand that we have to organize, organize ourselves differently, fundamentally, uh, internally. Can I possibly work another L-Y word in there? Um, versus the ones that just didn't do that. I think the ones that are successful are the ones that can do that can make that transition and the ones that aren't. And so that's why I'm glad you called out the deep integration of tech and journalism because I think we have to recognize that more and more and more what legacy organizations like the Times, like the Guardian, like the FTR are technology companies where they have to start acting like them. Otherwise, I think we're sort of in trouble. Thank you, Aaron. Kevin. Um, <clears throat> well, um, I... I learned a lot about Vice from, <laughs> from, reading, um, from reading this article. So I've been there for two years. I was hired from uh, Legacy uh, Media to launch the news channel. Um, and it's been an um, extraordinary experience for me because I've learned a lot. But what I thought about what you noticed about Vice, and I thought slightly rumbled us, uh, <clears throat> is that we're actually a mix. And what we are is a mix of good old-fashioned storytelling and journalism and tech and digital. And that's what I think is quite interesting about us as a company, because we're content first. And we're sort of obs not obsessed by platform, we're obsessed by the content, our content on all screens and all devices. <clears throat> the devices and the screens and the platforms are going to change. Well, Vice content, the business of Vice, producing that content is the thing that will be the thing that sustains the business throughout. So actually, we are storytellers first, and that's how we see ourselves. And if you look at the history of Vice, and I'm afraid it's only 20 years old, 1994, it started out as a magazine. <clears throat> and it started out as a sort of alternative magazine that knew its market very well in Canada. And it grew online. And the key thing, again, about Vice is that it knows its market, it knows its audience. <clears throat> is one of the things that's slightly missing from this whole discussion is what's the content we're talking about and who is it who's consuming it. So we're 16 to 35, got a really keen understanding of that market. And Vice News came into being from that keen understanding. So a year ago, Vice News didn't exist. A year later, it's got 250 million video views, 1.5 million YouTube subscribers. How did that happen? That happened by the way that this business knows who comes to it as a business in a very micro level, really understand its audience. And we realize that by, slightly by happenstance, because of course, according to uh, what you found, we run a Willy Wonka fucking content factory, um, which is uh, what my founder described as us. Um, what we found was that when we put up very tough, really difficult um, news, current affairs, documentaries, there was a real market for them. So that's happenstance. We put them up, and they trafficked, and they were shared. What did that mean? Well, actually, we did some research then, and we used data. And what we found was, of course, 16 to 35s are just not served by news, current affairs, on television. And to some extent, the voices in newspapers, too, do not speak to them. So what we are is a voice and a tone of voice. And again, that's something that Lucy picked up, that the tone of voice across all our content and all our verticals, we're also divided into, into verticals, is consistent. Uh, and I think that's also the power of the brand. And I think one of the things that's slightly missing here is the brand, how you sell the brand and the importance of the brand. So the brand, tone of voice, and then the consistency in the content. And again, we, we promote and would say that historically, we have got a history, I guess, for 20 years, that our thing has been about authenticity. 
the journalistic authenticity of the work in its various forms from what was described occasionally as jackass uh, a few years ago um, you know the sort of the, the much more vice.com approach uh, to things right up to the Islamic State film we've made recently, uh, any of the big long documentaries, the authenticity is the thing that is attracting huge numbers of people. So we're very, very committed to the content first, and then we're looking around where that content should be seen, where, where it can be seen. Obviously our business model is therefore very mixed, and it's mixed across well, where the, who's going to buy the content, who wants the content. Some of that comes through our own platforms and through, but also through Facebook. At the moment we're still struggling with phones, you know, at the moment we're at 60 odd percent on the phone, two, three years from now it might be something else. What we're doing though is adapting the content to where we want it to see. So we you know we talk with Snapchat, we'll talk with any number of people. We will use the content differently in order to speak to the right part of the market, but actually fundamentally the tone and that sense of authenticity remains across all of it, which I think is why we are growing, because that's what people see, it's the tone of voice, it's the leadership voice you talked about as well. The business has a very, very clear mandate, I think. Shane, you know, as you found from the quotes, is very clear about what we are. Um, and I think, you know, you'll see that we live up to that too, you know. I think there are challenges, uh, you know, disruption will come along uh, to us as well. There are competitors in our space. What we decided to do, though, is just probably worth making the one sort of distancing between us and BuzzFeed uh, is that you know we are in a, a, we are a content originator in video particularly, and I think that very early on we're all chucked in together as some sort of digital thing that was happening. And actually, as 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 these things start to mature, I think the propositions will start to mature and become different too. And I think that's what's interesting about what BuzzFeed offers and what we offer. They're different offerings, and they're very clearly different offerings now. Okay. Thank you, Thank you very much. Um, thanks to all three of you. I just want to ask one question to all of you, uh, a, a sort of common question. Lucy, in her book, she makes quite a lot about the, the proportion of tech, tech people to journalists in each organization. And she has a really useful kind of summary chart telling us, well, she has a chart. In each case study, she talks about that. And I guess as I look at all three of you as panelists, as far as I'm aware, you probably all see yourselves as digital innovators. You all started as traditional journalists. So I'm just wondering how much you think it's about bringing in tech people or how much it's about old dogs learning new tricks. Um, so I don't know which of you wants to pick that up. I mean, Aaron, maybe? Do you want to be sort of, you're probably... <coughs> I don't know, I guess I'm the old dog. Um, the, <laughs> I was thinking about the, the new tricks, but there we are. Well, all right. Um, yeah, I mean, I started as a print reporter and then took a radical shift to the to the digital about a decade ago, and, but I'd always been on sort of the nerd wing of journalism, as I like to say. Um, I don't think it's just about bringing technologists into the newsroom. There was actually a pretty good piece a couple of weeks ago that made the rounds that um, um, I, it was sort of a very hyperventilating piece about how we shouldn't be thinking about bringing you know, technologists in the newsroom. And then upon further reflection, it got kind of walked back to, well, we shouldn't just do it stupidly. And that's unfortunately where I think a lot of newsrooms, you know, you, you talk to news executives and they say, oh, well, we'll solve our problems. We'll just bring a bunch of developers in. We'll sit them over there. And guess what? Then you have a bunch of developers sitting over there. Why are they there? And, and so the, 
the reason we did it at the Times to start with was twofold. And this was actually both, you know, sort of a joint newsroom technology. I had a dual report at the New York Times. It was twofold. One was to increase the newsroom's ability to make the internet, right? And that didn't at that time exist. We were still doing pretty much interactive. We're stuck in little flash. Remember flash? Uh, little flash windows. Everything happened right there. There was no mobile to worry about. In some ways, that was kind of the salad days. But you know, things evolve, and we want to make more ambitious things. We want to give the newsroom the ability to do that. And when you start doing that and collaborating with reporters and editors, a magical thing begins to happen. Suddenly, people who don't think of themselves as particularly digital go, "Bing! Guess what?" Suddenly, the storytelling that I do in this context works beautifully in that context also if we just sort of think about it up front and we can tell a story in, in a wonderful way. And so then over time, what that kind of became was actually it evolved into more of a product. I actually started calling the team that I ran because I didn't know what it was, more of an editorial product development team. We built stuff. We launched Upshot. We launched, you know, huge, um, you know, sub sub sites. Our Olympic site. We did a, a joint um, project with Reuters, as it turns out, Reuters to do to white label our Olympics product, which was developed completely out of the newsroom as a money making venture. I mean, on and on and on. And so then the third stage of that, I think, is when those two things come together. Is when the product and technology team that currently in most newsrooms sits, you know, certainly on a different floor, suddenly th those two you know, those two parts of the organization, the editorial part and the technology part and the product part, come together a little more seamlessly. And, and again, coming back to Vox and, and Vice and, and BuzzFeed and some of the peer plays, you look at that, particularly Quartz. I think if you look at how they're structured, it's a really interesting approach. Zach Seward, who, I don't mean to go on and on, but Zach Seward, obviously I care about this issue, so <laughs> just stop me. Uh, Zach Seward, okay, Zach Seward, who runs the product and tech team there, does both sides. He reports to editorial, but he also does, uh, he works on ad technology and things like that. So, I mean, it's evolving. That That's that's the key, is you sort of have to evolve this idea of just bringing new technologists into the newsroom isn't enough. Okay. James or, or, or Kevin, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, only if you want to. Yeah, I, th I think we're just, it's, it's quite integrated and natural. I don't think it feels like, it doesn't feel like we're having people over there. And, and you know, it just now is, it, it is something that's rather seamless. But also, you know, you're journalists and really if we're just employing large numbers of journalists or storytellers. You know, their natural inclination now is, is they're, they're, they're sort of digitally en enabled as well to think about what they're doing and the way they're doing. But they may also talk and talk to us about product and about the way they want things to move. Well, you know, I can tell my story better this way. Have we thought of it? Okay. So it's actually quite mixed and really rather natural now. Okay. I th uh, do you want to come in or shall I? Uh, I mean, they've both given very full answers. I mean, it's it's about old dogs and, and new dogs. Um, yeah, <laughs> old dogs. Um, what you are seeing is very different skills coming into the newsroom with new early career journalists that are very different from the journalists of our generation. And uh, these are digital natives who've grown up with technology from the age of five. And they're very comfortable with it. Actually, they've got a lot to teach people of my age. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful couple of slides we use in some of our presentations, which I've talked to David about before. One is the skills of an old journalist, and it's basically, I mean, I'm, this is a 
concise version, but uh, notepad, pencil, sharp mind, um, skills of new journalist, and there's about 20 of them, and it involves video and graphics and something called Nightingale to build your own charts, data skills. You know, it's much, it's much bigger and more demanding, and it's not just so much about inquiry and recording. It involves a lot of multimedia skills. Last point on this is that something as managing editor I find difficult is to value the skills of new journalists and I don't think we've got that right yet. We're very good at valuing foreign correspondents, news editors, um, you know, the economics team, <laughs> um, the media team, the retail team but we're probably not, I don't think we've got valuing these skills and these skills are at a premium and because it's early career journalists coming through like on our grad trainee scheme, um, we've not got it right and I think that will also determine in the future people like moving on quickly, you know, coming in and that's where the frustrations I think build particularly in legacy organizations where people, you're seeing, you're, we're, we're give you some anecdotes around this. You bring in graduate trainees, they learn the art of journalism in the way that we understand it and then three years later they can turn around and say actually you know I either want to run FT Weekend or I want to join a startup. <laughs> that wasn't the tra trajectory 20 years ago. Thank, thanks very much.